from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. (laughs) So this is actually our first official post-Halloween episode. The last one, even though it did come out right after. I think we recorded it maybe two days before Halloween. So we finally have time to talk about the Boulay Brothers Dragula Resurrection and how we spent our Halloween and all that good stuff. Yeah, the full cup of tea. Um, you know, the special has existed out in the world now for over two weeks, and I think um, we've gotten hit with a wave of positive response. Not only, even today, um, I was on the phone with Madeline Hatter, who called me from the East Coast, and she was, you know, going off in the way that she does, and I love her, but we got to the subject of the resurrection, and she said to me, she's like, girl... I don't think that I've gotten a chance to tell you guys, but it was the most amazing representation of drag that I've seen, I think, anyone on TV ever. And just from the production, the styling, the music choices, just the way, the the intimacy, like she was raving about it. And it reminded me, because we've been looking at it for so long, how good it actually is. And that has been the response from most people so far. I am still floored at the response that we've gotten to it. It's been universally across the board, a million percent positive. Yeah. And I'm so thankful to everyone that watched and everyone that's saying so much good stuff about it. Um, the press too has been insane. Yes. I, this is the biggest press we've gotten from any of the Belay brothers, Dragula, even the full season. Absolutely. It's been crazy. Like we've done so many interviews and, you know, Zoom interviews and phone interviews and all sorts of things. And we've been in Entertainment Weekly, mm-hmm. Variety Magazine, mm-hmm. Interview Magazine. We were on the cover of the BBC for Halloween, which I couldn't believe. Yeah, scalped when I woke up that morning and saw that on my feed. Woo. <laughs> it's kind of like when we had all the producers on the last episode and we were talking about how it's like, these are our goals, but it's sort of like you don't, even though you expect them because you plan for these th- things to happen, they're still shocking when they happen. Right. Because we put our heads down and we work really hard and we don't expect, uh, we're so used to not getting any accolades. <laughs> yeah. That kind of segues even to now, like this sort of nebulous period on the calendar where Halloween is behind us and we're quickly approaching the next you know, stupid holiday of the colonizer. And we don't know, you know, winter is upon us and the nights are long and the days are short. And it just feels strange. It feels cold. And, you know, we're fighting off that uh, seasonal depression. And that's almost like what it traditionally feels like to produce a season of the show. It's like tons of hard work and not a lot of recognition. So it's nice to see uh, the world sort of react to our newest creation in such a positive way. Yeah, I think so too. And once again, I just want to thank all the listeners at home for watching and saying so many beautiful things about it. We also are in love with it and everyone that was on the special and our winner, of course, Saint, not Saint Lucia, Saint. <laughs> Everything changes, including her name. Now, not something that a lot of listeners don't know is that, you know, because the premiere was also during this COVID pandemic that everyone's been living under. And of course, that was pervasive through how we had to film it and what the 
footage was like because everybody was living in quarantine, we were actually able to rent a full-size theater uh, not far from Los Angeles and invite a very small group of people. Of course, it was distance and safe, but we did our own premiere with some of the, the creators of the show and some of the producers, sort of extended family, and we screened it like sort of on the big screen at an actual theater. And it was such a joy, not only to see it so huge, um, just to see how, how deadly and gorgeous we looked, even when our faces were like 30 feet tall, but also the reaction uh, for the first time in front of a live audience and how emotional people got and just how, how affected people were by the footage. Yeah. I think it's the first year we were unable to do an official premiere party where we screened with everybody there. So it was nice to see a raw reaction from people in the flesh, seeing it for the first time. A lot of people were crying, which, you know, I I forgot because we watched it so many times that when we were there filming with them, we had that emotional reaction as we were filming it. But the more times you watched it, it wore off, you know, by the time you got to the final product. So to sort of have people see it for the first time and react that way and witness it uh, was moving, you know? And how did she think about Shudder's reaction in general? It was obviously explosively successful, massive success. I'm not going to get into how successful because I think that will spill a little bit of tea that maybe we're not (laughs) ready to spill yet, but I'll say it has opened up a whole new world of possibilities. You know, the show just continues to grow and get bigger and I'm excited because I feel like, uh, it's just going to give more opportunities for the outcasts, misfits, and true artists of this community to get a chance to shine. Absolutely. Including ourselves. I mean, you know, not to be that bitch, as Laura would say. <laughs> Jack, go ahead and be that bitch. You know what I mean? It's like, I think we have a lot of creative projects we'd like to share with people. And it's exciting that we get opportunities to do that and that we're going to get more. So um, anyways, h- how do you feel... Halloween went. I mean, this was our first Halloween in quarantine, hopefully the last. Uh, Yeah. How did you feel about it? I mean, it was strange, of course. I mean, it was strange to say the least. I felt for the children literally across the country that were kind of robbed of the opportunity to experience Halloween the way we always do. Because every time I think back of Halloween when I was a little kid, it's such a magical time of year. It's my favorite time of year. And you know, people in my family, they're young and they're experiencing it too. So I made sure I sent out lots of spooky presents uh, just to give the kids that are related to me a little bit of extra zhuzh in this time that's just so strange and like kind of isolated. Um, and we took our own advice. You know, we made those homemade masks and jack-o'-lanterns and had the spooky retro soundtrack. And we went to the beach under the full moon on Halloween night alone on the coast, just under, you know, on the edge of the ocean. And it was, you know, it was the magic that we made it. But it certainly was nothing that we're used to. It did feel very magical, I will say. Yeah. So we were able to infuse. It felt like Halloween, for sure. Probably in a way that I haven't felt Halloween in a long time. If ever, for me. Very interesting. What do you think about, you know, obviously we were in quarantine for Halloween. Cases with COVID are continuing to rise. And places are starting to get even more shut down than they were again. Yeah. Um, what do you think this holiday season's going to look like, like November, December? I fear it's just going to be more of the same, but 
I'm kind of one of those people that will go to a class and enjoy someone like yelling in my face to motivate me. Like I, I get motivated by being like beat down, you know, you just, you just can't keep me down. So, I mean, I think COVID is trying to come for me and kind of trying to come for everybody, but I decided a long time ago, this is a long game and I can play and I can win. Like, I'm not going to get tired. I'm not going to let the season play mind tricks on me and and sort of beat my will down or feel depressed or anything like that. I'm just going to keep it moving. Well, I think that people may need a little bit of saving of Christmas this season, just like how we had to step in and save Halloween. Oh, might have to roll up our sleeves <laughs> and help out with Christmas a little bit. Well, maybe the people do deserve a little nightmare before their little Christmas. I have some ideas. I have some ideas that we will. I'm talk sure to you, about you do. Before we get to Christmas, I want to remind you that it is the fall season. It is November. It's a season of corn and pumpkins and hay. And as you can see, I decorated our area. You absolutely did. For those of you, obviously you can't see this, but we have <laughs> stalks of wheat. We have cornucopias of gourds and all of the accoutrements of the fall harvest season at our table as we record Candles, this podcast. gourds, all that sort of thing. I wanted to give you, get you guys in a really kind of spooky November, weedy <laughs> kind of feeling. You know what? I think that's the perfect time to bring in Ian so we can see his reaction since you gave me very little to my wheat <laughs> festival decorations. Ian, welcome to the podcast once again. Hey, ladies. How are you today? Pretty good. Yeah? You? <laughs> I'm just waiting for your reaction. Have oh, a look I, around. Let it soak it up. Listen, I didn't want to just let the floodgates burst, but the, the office is fully decorated, judged to God. Uh, it's very Children of the Corn fantasy in here. Uh, I've got my little reaper sickle. I'm ready to go. It's that time of year, right? Dried corn, gourds, all that kind of stuff. sure yeah all that kind of stuff (laughs) now you know i was wondering and i actually asked this on twitter since you guys i've decided something new so you guys don't want to talk to me about all the stupid shit that i come up with but twitter does want to talk to me about oh thank you so i the other day i don't know where we are somewhere i think we're we were somewhere and I asked you guys about something and you don't want to talk about it. So I was like, fine. So I tweeted it and all these people responded Let's to me. Let's back up a little bit. You looked it? at me and you said, should I tweet this? Should I tweet this? And I was like, absolutely. I encourage her fully. I'm like, put it out there. Let's just see. I think it's fine. And I think people will react in turn. And lo and behold, you discovered that you have a huge audience willing to play with you out there in Twitter world. <laughs> yeah. I like to ask a lot of what if questions. Yes. And Swan does not like to answer them all the time. So... I found that Twitter is more than happy to answer them. I'm a little lost here. What was the what if question? I will admit that I'm desperate to watch an intimate style documentary that shows what's been happening behind the scenes in the White House over the last few days. I want Melania confessionals, aid meltdowns, and long, uncomfortable, quiet scenes with Trump watching TV alone. And I tried to get you, Nathan, and Casey in on this, and no one responded. But you know what? 3,000 people on Twitter did respond. Okay, wait, hold on. I feel like I have to defend my (laughs) honor here because I distinctly remember saying that this was a good idea. Like, my recent favorite thing that's come out of this whole election cycle has been uh, the leaked audio of Melania, uh, like, talking to her advisor where she's, like, you know, kind of lamenting all the things that are happening, you know, in the White House. And she goes, oh, you know, I have to do all this stuff and I have to do all these, like, Christmas, uh, all the Christmas stuff. And who gives a fuck about Christmas stuff and decorations? And I'm like, I... (laughs) 
love you. I mean, I hate like the whole family, but it was like such a gem. So I'm here for it. No, it really was. Well, um, the reason I brought it up though is because I asked a question on Twitter and I wanted to ask you guys this question too, which is, you know how some people like live Halloween. They like, you know, there's, jack-o'-lanterns and shit in their house all year and christmas i think similarly people have christmas decorations up all year they collect things and go to conventions and all this do you think there's any people out there that do that but with like the off holidays like thanksgiving or valentine's day or any of that i'm sure there are like you know, celebration Martha's out there of like every shape and color that pretty <laughs> much like celebration Martha. That's another podcast, but you can you know <laughs> use your imagination. But I feel like they must have boxes somewhere in their attics or the recesses of their basements. And it's like when it's time to like put away all the oogly spookalies and then they bring out like the cornucopias and the, tur- the hand turkeys and the decorated gourds and the wheat and everything. <laughs> and then they just look forward to the next thing. And then they just look forward to the next thing. And like some people no, like see, to do that. That's okay. That is understandable. I think that that people in suburbia, that's how they deal with the existential dread of their existence. Are we generalizing too much? No, seriously, I think, honestly, I think it can be like, if you live in middle America and it's like November, life probably sucks a little bit, you know? I I mean, really? The only joy that those people ever get is when the clock strikes midnight, it goes from October 31st onto November 1st. It's, all I want for Christmas is you. Like, it's like the Mariah Carey just comes out. Okay, wait, I'm one of those people. Oh, oh my God. Well, getting off the subject, though, I don't mean people that decorate for Thanksgiving or like Thanksgiving, but do you think there's anyone out there that's like, all year, that's their shit? Oh, like, Like, that's the passion. That's their, they're like, they have pilgrim things, and I wonder if it's weird. It's it weird. weird. I mean, but I that's think, what that's why I want to know. That's why I want to know. Okay, but like, I think that there probably are some like Thanksgiving thoughts out there. But like, are there people who are like, girl, the one holiday every year, St. Patrick's Day? I mean, like, that's like their thing. Like, yeah, they're really, called alcoholics. Someone oh, on and Twitter oh. <laughs> said that they knew someone who was like that with Arbor Day of all holidays. Arbor, oh, they bitch, I lived. For Arbor Day. And so they were in college and they said that they had a bunch of roommates and this person's mom was the one that was the Arbor Day fanatic. And they would get these big gift bags for Arbor Day and they'd be like, what the fuck is this? I mean, there's something kind of hippie and hipster and like Earth Day adjacent about that that I'm kind of into a little bit, but I can't see it. (laughs) You know... If anyone out there knows of anyone that kind of lives one of those off holidays all year round, please write to us and let us know because I really want to know. That would be interesting. Someone did respond to your Twitter and talked about, I think it was someone in their family who had given everything and lived for Easter. And it wasn't because they were religious because to the contrary, they said she wasn't religious, but she loved, loved, loved rabbits and anything pastel. So the whole house just turned into like this pastel rabbit nightmare, which kind of seemed cool. Do you guys remember? Yes, yes totally. Universal, uh, Universal Studios for Halloween. They did yes. that holiday. Yeah, it was like a holiday horror maze. I was honestly really pleasantly surprised and kind of gagged. Like for listeners, we went to Universal Studios, I think it was like two years ago. Yeah. And they had a maze that was like, you would walk in and it started with, I think it would start with Halloween, but then it just kind of went through the calendar of all the holidays and each one was, you know, kind of like a macabre version of that holiday. And it was fucking great. Yeah. I mean, I, I that's the thing. I think all of those holidays can be kind of terrifying. You know, I do like, I think Easter is, can be terrifying. 
It, the, the idea of this bunny thing, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, look, you have to have my demented mind to get it, <laughs> but it's like, if you just skew it a little bit, it's scary. No, it's because it can be seen through the lens of childhood. And mm. in your childhood mind, like so many things that are impossible can become not only possible, but probable. And no, now they're definitely happening to me. So yeah. I met this creature coming in and hiding things around your house. So like little presents is so ri- ritualistic. But it's also like mixed with, Okay, first there's like religion, which the story of Easter is horrifying anyways and very zombie-like. And then you mix that with like now suddenly there's this cartoon rabbit, like someone in a costume sneaking into your house and shit. I'm like, there's a horror story there. I mean, I think kind of any anytime you're celebrating, like the idea of like flipping that on its head, I think is kind of horrifying. It's like a time where it's like, oh, we're all safe. We're all with our family. We're just hanging out. And then suddenly... I don't know, the Easter rabbit's got, like, a knife in his basket. Yeah. Those 70s uh, Easter, but you know that, like, in the malls, they would have, like, Easter, I don't know if they still do that, where people would dress up like, like Santa, and you would, like, take a picture with Yeah. If you've seen any pictures from the 70s of those costumes, they are scary. <laughs> it may, yeah, it may not be just be limited to the 70s, but I've seen them where they look like melted horror icon faces, like a <laughs> rabbit that looked like... I mean, I don't even know. You put it through like a meat slicer or something. It looks super scary. Google them because they're Ooh. terrifying. I'm into it. I mean, I feel like the meat slicer is going to be a theme throughout this episode sure coming is. up yeah, in our movie right. review. <laughs> well, you know, I think we're just kind of talking about the most random shit right now, which maybe is fitting for November, right? It is a nebulous period. <laughs> but I think we should let Ian uh, bring us some Hollywood horror news to change the tone a little bit. Well, I know we're all suffering from the post-Halloween blight around here, so today I have news stories from the realms of horror movies, terrifying TV shows, gruesome video games, and a few odds and ends that I know will darken the mood. To start things off, I wanted to share a few stories from the virtual world with one update that has fans screaming for joy and another out of sadness. Beginning with the bad news, developers of the Friday the 13th video game, Gun Media, announced that the final patch for the game will be coming to players this month. While players will still be able to play peer-to-peer matches and keep their progress, all dedicated servers for the game will be decommissioned with this patch. Really? Yeah. So essentially the developer said that they're going to continue to make sure the game is still like, you know, playable and has a pleasant experience, but there's no new content, no new patches, and you can't do any sort of like custom lobbies and things like that. So which is basically like our COVID experience after Halloween. No new patches, no new <laughs> updates. You can play and it might be pleasant, oh God, but no more it's the same. You know, they did that with the uh, what was the game is it like EverQuest? There used to be a game that everyone would play before World of Warcraft, like people that were into that kind of stuff that was like huge. And they did the same kind of thing where it's like those servers oh, yeah. still exist, but they just don't. I think it was. Yeah. I think it is EverQuest. I think that was kind of the big one. People were into that. That yeah. was like too too deep for me. But yeah, similarly, I guess they just keep them running forever. Unfortunately, the game has been plagued with like legal and gameplay issues since its launch, but it has like a huge fan base. So I don't know. I think that people are kind of bummed about this one, understandably. Moving on, uh, this is some news that uh, definitely made me smile. Mortal Kombat 11 developers NetherRealm have finally announced that the true queen of Edenia, Princess Melina, will be joining the roster on November 17th. Uh, when the game was first announced, and up until this point, honestly, fans were disappointed to learn that Melina wouldn't be bringing her signature brand of face-eating Tarkatan realness to Mortal Kombat 11, but I saw the reveal trailer, and personally, I feel like the bitch is back, and she's, like, super bad. So, When I think of Mortal Kombat the, as the franchise as a whole, Melina is, like, part of it. Totally. Like, Melina and Katana go hand-in-hand. When they have iterations that don't include both of them, it's definitely a letdown. 
Melina is terrifying. Like, she's, like, super hot and sexy, and she rips that mask off, and it's that giant maw of teeth. I'm like, oh my god, yes, queen. Did they add, like, weird characters like Terminator and stuff? I'm like, how could you add that before? Oh, yeah. I actually just down- I re-downloaded Mortal Kombat 11, and it has uh, Terminator, it has the Joker... Um, the Joker, like, what? Yeah, I mean, the previous one it had, they did, like, a thing with Universal, I think, and it was, like, they had um, Xenomorphs, they had the Predator, they had uh, Michael Myers and uh, Jason. Like, On which Friday. one? I think it was Mortal Kombat 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that one was fuck. <laughs> What's the one that we all played for like a hot minute and then that's we, it? That, that's, oh, we played eleven. No, yeah. eleven. Yeah, we all yeah. have eleven. Yeah, yes. we did the. Um, we actually we did the release at Queen Kong. Yeah, we should. Then, then we so were fun. like, oh, we're all gonna get this. We're gonna have game night. We're gonna do battles. And then I went out and got it. And I think Nathan got it too. And, and we've done that how many times? Zero. Well, I think we were. <laughs> oh God, I'm pretty sure we were in the middle of filming season three. I'm like, stop trying to pretend like we have time to have a life. <laughs> I know. Every six to eight months, I like to try. Ugh. Well, moving on to the silver screen, I have news for you that might be a bit of a departure from the normal fare we're used to. Specifically, I don't have any delays to report this episode. Nobody's making anything because it's November. (laughs) (laughs) True. But I do have a bunch of announcements that I'm sure listeners are going to be really excited about. Danielle Harris has revealed new details about her upcoming film titled The Sequel. It's about final girls who have survived mass murders in rural areas who are going to come together for the ultimate battle. Now, is she going to be in it, or is she just producing it? Uh, I don't know if she's going to be in it, but she is directing it. She needs to be in it. She needs to be the star of it. I want to say this, because we recently, we, of course, watched all the the Halloweens. Uh, And for those of you that don't know who Daniel Harris is, Daniel Harris was Jamie in the Halloween franchise on Halloween 4 and 5. To a lot of people, she is a bigger part of Halloween than Jamie Lee Curtis is. She's the most underrated final girl to me that's out there like she was we rewatched it recently and she is such an amazing actress like even as a kid yeah as a as a child I mean I think I saw those movies years and years ago so this was a refresher for me we watched Halloween 4 and then 5 like the next night Mm -hmm. so it was like a little bit of a binge and like Halloween 5 I could probably skip but Halloween 4 was like everything like Halloween 4 was so good and thanks to her and Donald Pleasance Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways yeah yeah I mean her acting as a child was exceptional that's a classic definitely for sure I think so for sure I think they mastered the uh, idea of like is this real is is Mm. this actually happening is this just the terror wait is he there is he not there and like looking through the shadow what you know, was Michael Myers there or wasn't he? But then he was, but wait, then he wasn't. And I was like, oh my God, I got pulled in immediately. I think it did a good job of sort of playing with Michael Myers as the boogeyman. Yeah. Mm. Is he there? Is he not? Is he in your head? Is it in her head? Because they insinuated a lot that she was imagining a lot of things too. Or somehow connected to him. Like there was something right. like, um, you know, metaphysical there. Well, despite all of the delays and things associated with the pandemic, there are a few new releases being greenlit, including Jordan Peele's upcoming untitled horror project that is slated to release on July 20th, 2022. I think it's personally kind of gaggy that we're already putting, like, you know, confident release dates on this film when everything else has been super delayed. A new film produced by Blumhouse based on a short story by Joe Hill called Black Phone. We don't have a release date for Black Phone, but I did think it was worth bringing up as we're going to be reviewing Children of the Corn this episode, famously written by Joe Hill's dad, Stephen King. And the last thing I have in terms of uh, movie news is that Jurassic World 3 has officially, finally wrapped filming in spite of all the delays and 40,000 reported COVID tests on the set alone. Wow. Welcome to the new normal. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, finally, I have a few items that didn't really warrant their own categories, but I definitely thought were worth mentioning this episode. I'll brush through these quickly. I thought we'd all appreciate this first one, though. Back in July, Marvel acquired the rights to the Alien and Predator franchises and have been pretty tight-lipped about what they're going to be doing with the IP. Although we won't be getting any new Alien crossover content until next April, Marvel has just released variant covers of 19 individual issues of various Marvel comics, all featuring Marvel heroes squaring off with xenomorphs in pretty incredible ways. Hmm, that sounds cool. Yeah, one of my favorites has Wolverine, just kind of like really close up with the Xenomorph, kind of like locked in battle. And I was like, oh my god, this is like exactly the crossover that I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Just more Wolverine. Thank you. (laughs) I got burnt out on Wolverine in comics in that period. I was like, okay. He was like on everything Mm. for a minute. It was annoying. Same. When they did the, uh, what was it? There's like in the early 2000s, they had that kind of the reboot of the movie franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, they introduced Leah Schreiber as Sabretooth. And girl, let me tell you the taste. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that scene too, specifically when the advertisement came out and you saw like footage, the trailer came out and he's like, it, it was snowing because Storm mm-hmm. was like calling the storm and he's like kind of sniffing the air. And I think, I can't remember what happened after that. I, he grabbed a tree and something out of the ground or something but yeah it was storm in her party city white wig (laughs) i'm like for a a movie that had such a huge budget they sure as hell didn't spend it on her wig oh they blew that entire budget on rebecca romaine as mystique which i mean i feel like is truly one of the best mystiques we've seen yeah definitely no budget to halle berry's they're like well we'll save 13 dollars and 50 cents yes I was so pissed. But, you know, I did hear that they're going to reboot the X-Men franchise. And I've seen, you know, I think it's mostly fans throwing around potential actresses. And they have the right idea. I'll just put it that way. That's exciting. Very. Beautiful, busty African goddesses. I love it. As they should be. And I I definitely grew to love uh, Rebecca Romaine's, like, depiction of Mystique. But I'm a Mystique queen. And when I was little, I loved Mystique. Her powers and frankly her mystique and uh but she something they took away from her was that fashion sense that she had in the comics because it was always like really tight and she had the the thigh high white boots and she looked like her skin wasn't so like sort of modeled and like 3d she was just kind of like smooth Mm -hmm. and alien which i really love so when i saw i'm like they took first of all they fucked up her hair and then they gave her all that weird shit on her skin. I'm like, wait a minute, like, like record scratch, back it up. This is not the mystique that I love, but I did grow to love her. Yeah, it was cool. I think they did such a neat job. It was such a departure from the comics character, but in an amazing way. Like almost both of them as individual characters were really interesting. But they also took away her lesbian lover, Destiny, which oh, was Destiny was amazing. Oh, yeah. Tell I us always, about it. Destiny was uh, Mystique's, like she was on, okay, Mystique was the leader of this government organization called Freedom Force, and they were like villains, but they were like worked for the government. And Mystique was one of the members, and they were lesbian lovers together. Oh my god, this is hot. Yeah, but I think they were similar in age, but Mystique doesn't really age, so oh. the human one aged, and um, she could tell the future and all kinds of crazy things. So when she would get fights, you couldn't really hit her because she knew what you were going to wow. do. Talk about an iconic look, though. Destiny's look Absolutely. was everything. Yes. She had like this big kind of like bubble helmet and like yeah. powder blue. Like she and was a crossbow. Fierce. Anyways, Super look fierce. it up. It's interesting. One last thing about the uh, X-Men franchise and like, the X-Men movies. I loved, I think it was X2. They introduced Lady Deathstrike into mm-hmm. like the movies. Yeah. And God, 
god damn it was so hot seeing like this fierce asian bitch like just in that pencil skirt filing those nails i was like oh you're like yes. you wanted to be her <laughs> oh girl yeah and then when she fights wolverine i was like oh my god smack him yeah. yes honey it was amazing I no, it, it was good Ooh, it was. the moments like those for for gay kids that make oh, it yeah yeah Absolutely. Totally. And the moment, you know, because they took away her boots and they took away her hair, they took away her skin. And I understood why with Mystique because they, they showed like what a like a skilled hand-to-hand combatant and how acrobatic she was. So she was like barefoot and like kind of barely had anything on. And when she's like kind of handcuffed in a helicopter and she said something like, it was because of people like you. I was afraid to go to school as a child. It like jumped out of the, the handcuffs and like the guy's head like kicked yes. the shit out of him like jumped out of the copter I was like oh my god I was like <laughs> out of my seat screaming oh my god I'm sorry do we need to like rewatch that movie for the podcast <laughs> it was exciting and then all of a sudden Halle Berry floated oh. in <laughs> with that busted wig <laughs> you're like forget it I'm like sorry Halle <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of crossovers and comics, uh, anime and manga streaming service Crunchyroll has released a line of merchandise combining the artwork of the king of illustrated Japanese horror, Junji Ito, with the iconography from The Misfits. I'm a huge Junji Ito fan. I'm a big anime nerd. Uh, This news update may just be for me, but uh, you should check out some of the stuff. It's like really grisly looking and kind of looks like almost like that pyre press that we saw at that one convention. Mm -hmm. Just that kind of style of artwork. Interesting. I I am not familiar with it, but I will check it out. Send me the link. Oh, yes. And finally, on a more somber note, uh, Ken Spears, co-creator of the original Scooby-Doo, has passed away at the age of 82. Spears, along with Joe Ruby, who recently passed away as well, created the iconic Scooby-Doo Where Are You and introduced a whole new generation of kids to accessible horror. And for that, I think we all kind of want to say thank you. And speaking of people that inspired you as a kid, I think, wasn't it Velma that was your number one inspiration? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) My glasses. I can't find my glasses. (laughs) Velma was the lesbian leader, and we all know it. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh slow news day huh yeah pretty much <laughs> but uh <laughs> how do we get to velma <laughs> scooby-doo is horror adjacent yeah i mean we referenced scooby-doo before on the belay brothers dragula thought it was you know worth a shot but anyway uh that's all i have for you today i hope those updates brought a little horror back to everyone's lives and staved off the impending repeat listens of all i want for christmas is you Ooh, not yet but it's coming <laughs> All right, so on that note, I wanted to remind everybody that we are adding a new literary section to the podcast in an effort to encourage people to put down their phones and read or even listen to an audiobook. Uh, I think it's meditative and it encourages your imagination and your own creative juices. So with that, I think we should dig right into it. So as we announced on the previous episode, we're going to start our first literary section with a reread and discussion of Stephen King's short story, Children of the Corn, which appears in his collection of short stories entitled Night Shift. Now, these stories were written decades ago, but for some of our younger listeners, this may be the first time they are hearing about this story, and we felt it was a great short to kick things off with. Um, We didn't want to tackle a whole book right out of the gate either, so we thought this was a great route to go. Everybody can read a short right now. So, let's talk about it. What did you guys think? Well, I want to take a second and just 
thank the listeners who went out and got Night Shift and kind of read along with us because I think that's part of the fun of being able to announce like, hey, on the next episode, we're going to talk about this new section of the podcast. Maybe you could read it too. So when you're listening, you can gather your own thoughts and sort of compare them to ours. And we know at least, I mean, a couple of dozen people went out and bought it because they've been communicating with us through our social media. And that just feels good. I think we're, we're encouraging people to read in a time when I really don't think <laughs> anyone does. Totally. I feel the same way. I mean, I do want to clear one thing up. Uh, someone messaged me and was like, because I, I posted something. I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited to be reading this. They're like, oh, how does it feel to learn how to read? And I was like, okay, let me just clarify this. Even though I said on the podcast that I didn't know how to read, I love to read. <laughs> so let's begin. Yeah, I think all of us love to read. And I think it's it's good to encourage people. I mean, all of us are so in our phones all day now, you know, or we're watching a movie or playing a video game or whatever. Like people don't read it. I, reading this book reminded me because... I also haven't read anything in a while. Yeah. That it really, nothing takes the place of reading a good book. That is so true. I mean, we also watched uh, the movie adaptation of Children of the Corn after we all read it. And it's there is just nothing like reading. Like, I, I grew up with a huge love of reading and just being able to kind of build that world in your imagination. Like, I feel like there is just something about reading, especially reading horror, that nothing can ever touch it. So this was a short story. Right. Uh, did you guys feel like... It took you to another place. Did it Did it do the job? For me, I'd say absolutely. I mean, I think when you just look at those, when, when the idea of reading got introduced, I'm like, great, more work for the podcast. But then I'm like, okay, it's a merciful 45 pages or something like that. I'm like, I got this because I also love to read and I haven't read anything in probably a couple of years. Um, I've told you guys, like, if I get onto a book, maybe I'll read like a few in a row. I kind of go on these reading binges and then I'll stop for like a year or whatever. But it's been a while. So it, it kind of like got me back into those, into that state of mind to just relax and like settle and it is meditative and read and it immediately brought me to this isolated place a a time before cell phones and social media and so much accessibility when you could be in your car with just one other person in the middle of literally nowhere and feel that vulnerability like the possibility of things happening even to adults because I think children feel that almost all the time they don't have that ultimate connection with everything all the time so so on Settling or surprising things could happen, but Stephen King in the in the opening couple of pages, you, you immediately feel the realm of possibility sort of opening up for you know what's going to happen out here in the middle of nowhere in these uncharted, weird routes through Nebraska with these two people. One of my favorite things about the short story as a whole was the dynamic between the two main characters, Bert and Vicky. Um, we're kind of thrown into their car and their like failing marriage. Um, and just from moment one, just the way that Stephen King writes their their dialogue and, you know, the thoughts of Bert. I mean, you can just tell, like, there's just so much tension between these two characters. And for me, it, like you said, Drag, like, it totally transported me into this place of, like, it's total isolation. You're in the car, and the only person to talk to is someone that you cannot stand. I thought it was really effective as a short story, too, because it did tell a full story. I felt like I read a whole book, even though it was, a, a you know, like you said, 45 or 54 pages. I forget what it was. I felt like I was taken on a complete journey. I also felt that it did inspire terror, absolutely, and intrigue. It kept me engaged the whole time. I think that scene uh, where he first comes out, I think he was in the church and uh, all the kids are attacking the car. I was like, okay, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, something that was established well before that, because most of this book, I think, is just it establishes the mood. And then the end is like really where like it, it just kind of picks up and just skyrockets to the to the culmination. But before that scene, you get this build of like the creep factor of like this religious fanaticism. Yes. You know, and whether it be like what they're hearing on the radio or the isolation or like how has this like little church, this Grace Baptist church been sort of transformed and even the icon of the of the Christ in there is really kind of like pagan and sort of scary, like the black fiery lake reflected in the, the Jesus's eyes and, you know, corn silk hair. And you're like, this is sort of like hearkening to like paganism and like the God of the Old Testament. And that's scary stuff. That is like horrifying taken at face value so it had me on edge even before we see the kids sort of like attacking the car totally i feel like my favorite things about it is like you said like the ending is really just it's super explosive but the lead up to it is just this really slow burn just kind of horror like nothing really happens it's just you know them kind of traveling to the town but then you just kind of you get the sense of like first of all i think bert is an asshole and bert just kind of like leads <laughs> vicky into this town she's like i want to go and there's just almost kind of like there's something that's drawing him further and further into this mystery and then by the time they get to the church it is way too late and it's kind of like their fate is sealed which just kind of comparing it to the movie I really love that Stephen King just kind of went there it was like there is not a happy ending because not all stories deserve a happy ending for me and I feel like that made it really just kind of brutal I do want to compare it to the movie but maybe we should wait uh, until the movie because there's a lot of interesting things yeah yeah for sure um I mean, so what would you guys say as a read? What would you give it as a fear factor, like an A through F rating? Personally, I would give it an A. I feel like it's very accessible. Uh, the book that I got was $9, so, you know, Mama Loves a Bargain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was super accessible. I thought that the scare, the scares at the end are really effective. Um and I think that Stephen King's writing is really brilliant. Like something, I, there's a couple of things I always forget about Stephen King's writing. First of all, is that he's kind of funny. Like he's like he ha- this his sense of humor is really dark. And there's a lot of just these like kind of like little jokes that he makes that they almost they just make you feel really uneasy, which I really love. And then also that there's this supernatural element that I always forget. I'm like, oh yeah, like misery. And I'm like, oh wait, it and Pet Cemetery. Like these are all kind of supernatural too. And Children of the Corn takes this supernatural paganistic turn and I was gagged honey there's something about his writing too and for listeners who follow our podcast you know I admitted last episode I think it was like have you ever read a Stephen King or what's your favorite Stephen King movie versus book and I was like okay I I love Stephen King movies and I forgot to say how much I loved Carrie but I've never read one of his books because I tried several times in high school and junior high and I just could never get past just that past that point where you're like okay I'm hooked and I'm in so something that I realized about this his writing was that he presents these kind of crazy ideas almost as the thoughts of the main character and he establishes what's happening in the story without it actually being like spelled out for you for example like in Bert's head he's like yeah imagine that honey like the kids just kind of killed all of their parents and like retrofitted this church and now we're like you know kind of it's almost like Lord of the Flies ish you know imagine that like they're sacrificing to this new god and I'm like holy shit imagine that and like just that the entirety of like how many pages that might have taken me to write, he did it in like half a paragraph and, and just kind of connected all of those weird esoteric sort of supernatural dots for me. And I'm like, okay, holy shit, like here's where we are. Absolutely. 
And that leads me to my kind of, maybe my final point about it. Something I really, really, truly loved is, I, I don't know, this is really weird. I love when horror is sad. Like, I love I love when it's like a little bit of a tear jerk at the end. And I feel like, you know, the, the main characters are done away with. And then they kind of talk about the kids and kind of how they're going to adapt after this. And it's like, oh, well, the age of, like, the calling has been dropped to 18. And then all the kids kind of prepare for you know the new uh the new calling or whatever and it's painted in this way that's really sad and you know you kind of get to look at these kids lives not as like oh they're monsters but like they're just kids they're just children it's really freaky it's the same thing (laughs) (laughs) you know i think too the cult aspect of it and living in these bizarre times that we're living in now you would say that could never happen but as we can all Mm. see that could happen even in a day today that has all this technology maybe because originally you think okay if you live somewhere that's isolated and you grew up around that it would be easy to convince a community to think like that but today we have so much technology and we're connected you would think well that would never happen today actually maybe it could happen easier because you can be blasted constantly and reinforced via social media or you know, whatever it is, so that it's it's like things like that could still happen today. It almost would be interesting to see what a story like that would look like today from a technological point of view, like a modern interpretation of that story. Yeah, I, I it's interesting to, to consider that and bring this idea that Stephen King presents, because to me, he's presenting the idea of like an Old Testament God where the God is like an active part in the people's everyday lives. Like this this world of children of the corn uh bert has a realization when he's like running through the fields he's like he has like almost like this realization that maybe there is something supernatural happening here because the ground is pristine the corn has no rot at all there's no bugs there's no decay like is what these children are doing are the sacrifices that they're making i.e they're the adults and the parents and anyone above the age of 18 like actually working it's like enriching everything that the children work for and it's it's sort of like wow this is like actually imbuing this idea of a new god and bringing it into the world where the idea gets presented like an old testament god a god is active in your life and the more you believe in it and the more that you worship it and partake in that worship the more power and the more realization the god has so if you bring that forward into like social media and the way people can be absolutely programmed maybe we can have like not only a cult of personality but like a god of personality with mindless followers just and these ideas being transmitted <laughs> I right what to that be referring to <laughs> wink wink <laughs> <laughs> well i think that's a good point to transition on maybe and we can go into this episode's creature feature movie review and obviously this episode we've chosen to review the children of the corn movie to go along with the book i thought it would be interesting to compare the two what's so funny over there ian <laughs> i <laughs> sorry but i have this like huge stupid grin on my face because i love this book I, th- I think the short story is really fabulous and i think the movie is very strange well before <laughs> So, okay, we just we decided to stick with our autumn theme and review the original Children of the Corn film. Uh, the movie was made in 1984, so it's a rewatch for some of us and probably many of you. Uh, it's a classic Stephen King-inspired movie. It's described as a supernatural folk horror, and the movie was written by George Goldsmith and directed by Fritz Kirsch. 
and was all based on a Stephen King short story that we just discussed a few minutes ago. Um, so let's talk about it. Yeah, I want to set the tone. This is 1984, right? Kind of like a high point in horror, if you ask me, when it comes to like classic franchises coming out. This is the year Firestarter came out, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Children of the Corn, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Whoa. All in 1984. And That's you can even wild. hear some of the soundtrack in uh, Children of the Corn. You can hear that little synth that we get used to and especially heard in like Nightmare on Elm Street that's now made like a huge comeback and like the idea of like synth wave and that whole genre of music. And we're establishing the rules of modern classic horror right here in the middle of the 80s. Totally. Speaking of kind of modern horror with the inspiration, something that I did think was interesting with this and something that it owes uh, specifically to the short story is the daytime horror aspect of it, I think is really effective. I think Mm. when it becomes night, it kind of goes off the rails in a really weird way, but the daytime parts are genuinely kind of terrifying. You know, when they're traveling in the car, uh, even though they've changed the dynamic of Vicky and Bert, they're kind of like the loving couple at this point. Boring. Uh, Totally. Um, It is still, it's horrifying. You know, the idea that something like this could happen in broad daylight, I think is something that people aren't really, they're not used to seeing that. And when it does happen, I was like, oh, oh my God. I want to say, too, as someone that grew up in like a rural area and visited family growing up that was in even much more remote areas, things like this could happen in those places, especially in those times. Like the idea of people getting killed and there not being any cops or people around to stop it, that could absolutely happen. It absolutely probably did happen in many cases and things that we don't ever even hear about, you know? So I think. Uh, it's very believable, the beginning part at least, sure. uh, that something like that could happen. And I think that makes it a little more terrifying. I mean, did you guys buy into that time period and fear of it or no? I did up until a certain point. I think that, um, you know, I, I grew up in Texas and, you know, I'm not as rural as I think, you know, Drac is kind of referring to, but I do think that there is a special kind of terror in the, you know, kind of almost being alone, um, just in the wilderness. And I did buy into that, but I did think that the, the film took so many liberties from the original story that I kind of found, I found myself almost unable to kind of get into the new ideas that they were uh, trying to push forward. I think they did the book a, a huge disservice. And Jack, you told me like, I think Stephen King made the first uh, stab at, at the original mm-hmm. screenplay, which they denied and then went with this iteration. And I just didn't enjoy it. And I think maybe I was spoiled because I, I just read the story and then watched the movie kind of like to refresh both. To answer your question, I kind of believed that they established the isolation and, you know, the possibility could something like this happen and someone die and like, you know, local authorities or you couldn't reach people like that stuff wasn't readily available. I think so. You know, I think they established that. I think they kind of established the presence of the supernatural in the lives of these children with like the corn stalk sort of like splitting for Bert as he was coming through and like the storm clouds. And there was a little bit of like a supernatural presence that the short story definitely established, but it was just kind of corny. Ultimately, I feel like the short story was a hundred times better than the book. I mean, the way that, that they, that the story unfolded in the book was so much more horrifying and believable. And it, you know, it didn't have that 
you know, every 80s movie kind of had like, here's the two couple and the heroic guy and the cute kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, it ruined it to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think that part of the magic and the horror of the short story is kind of like we talked about, like the dynamic between Bert and Vicky. They're they're at odds. And we just we almost get thrown into their story kind of just in in the middle of their day. And I think that not knowing a ton about their backstory or not knowing a ton about the backstory of the town leads to that feeling of, oh my God, I'm witnessing something that I shouldn't be witnessing. It's exactly that. It's the idea that the book follows, which like the less you know about the children, what's happening in the fields, where are they, all these like questions, the longer they go unanswered, the more horrifying it is. But the, the movie proceeds to just kind of fill in all the answers for you as you go along. And it's very ineffective. Like it just... The, the movie doesn't hold up. Yeah, there, there's one scene that I think, you know, collectively, we, the three of us enjoyed kind of in the way that like, you know, we kind of get off on like, you know, kind of goofy stuff. Um, but it's, they're in the church. Um, and in the book, uh, you know, Bert comes into the church and he sees the ledger with all the children's names on it. And like Swan said, he kind of has this realization of like, oh, they're all, you know, they all die on their 19th birthday. Like he's kind of like unraveling the mystery himself. But then in the movie, he like busts in to this church. They're doing the ritual right there. And there's this one girl who's like holding the sickle. And I mean, she's the real star. She's like, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> like, we're killing people. And they like, they just, they do this like really big kind of like, well, in case you wanted to know, this is the ritual of the town. And this is why we do this. I'm like, this would never happen. Just kill him and get it done with. Yeah. I have to say, I love like rural horror stories and movies, like for the most part. And there was a lot of elements to this movie that I liked. And I think there were some good scares in it. I think uh, the when they run over the kid in the beginning, that yes. is legitimately Agreed. scary. Yes, it is. Um, and a lot of the, even the concepts, there's a couple of scenes in it and the concept in general that I think are effective and I like. Overall, I think it's kind of a bad movie, I have to say. Even though it's a classic, everyone knows Children of the Corn. You have to watch it, but it, especially if you've read the book, you kind of have to laugh at it a, a little bit. You know, it's they yeah. t- they take so many liberties; it goes way off the rails. Like to me, I'll agree with mostly with what you say. To me, when I read Children of the Corn, the book, it wasn't so much about the children; it was about their sacrifice, the mm-hmm. the, the lambs that they were sacrificing, which are Bert and Vicky. They're the next; they're the next adults that come through the town. They're sacrificed. The God even manifests in the book, mm-hmm. and is it like a John Deere tractor? I'm like, it's giant and green and with red eyes. And I'm like, but no, is it, you know, you just plant this idea of like, what is it? And what could it be? Is it actually like a huge monster? Like this, this horrific God manifest. So it's very frightening, but it's about the, the lambs that they're sacrificing, which are the adults. But then you get to the movie and it's like, it's about the kids, but kind of about this couple who are not fighting. They're actually in love. And then they fuck everything up and become the heroes and the ending is just so wackadoodle out there <laughs> and they, they walk away in the sunset happy I'm like oh give me the Stephen King book right it's yeah. the happy ending that Ian was referencing yeah, yeah. Um, I will say, I think that there are some good ideas here. And I do think that with the exception, I, I didn't love the opening scene, even though the like hand in the ham slicer is kind of amazing. Um, I think that the opening, like the first half of the movie is not, is not bad. It's, right. it's pretty good. You're, you're getting set up for what I think could be a good ending. And then the liberties just, I mean, they really just start to take them and it just completely goes off the rails. I will say though, if you haven't seen it and you are interested in seeing it, I would check it out because I think that there are a lot of things that this movie lays the groundwork for that we see in a lot of modern horror. Like we, all three of us were like, oh oh my God, 
that like Midsommar and like yeah. just kind of several times like, Oh, that reminds me of this or of this. Vicky being hung on the cross toward the end is absolutely the precursor to the May Queen's regalia mm-hmm. in Midsommar. I also liked uh, that they had a copy of night shift on the dashboard yeah, of the car when cute. they were driving in the beginning. And yeah, I mean, I think you should watch the movie. I think it's worth watching, but it definitely, like you said, I mean, I remember watching this movie as a kid and seeing that diner scene, and it was scary. Mm-hmm. You know, now horror has gone to so many places that a scene like that is not going to be sure. scary any longer. But when I was a kid and I watched it, and the idea of flipping the power and having the kids kill the adults, there was something kind of terrifying about it. And it's not so terrifying today. <laughs> One last uh, little reference that I remember, I, I remember thinking it while we were watching was that opening diner scene, I think 100% inspired Lady Gaga's telephone video, which mm. like cracked me the fuck up. I was watching it. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> That's all. Oh, and on that note, I think we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to answer a few listener questions and then invite you on a strange journey as we explore this episode's haunting of history. Stay tuned. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. All right. Welcome back, everyone. As we mentioned before the break, we're going to dive right in and answer a few listener questions. We're going to invite Ian to ask us the questions on behalf of all of you once again. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. We'll get started here. Uh, IPA Dragon asks, how did your producers and both of you come up with the structure of resurrection, which looks to do, etc.? So a few people asked this question. I don't know. Maybe it was missed on people, but... It's pretty obvious because it's a special that features returning competitors from all three seasons. And season one is the witch. Season two is the ghost. And season three is the vampire. So like we said on the show, (laughs) they are three of our favorite challenges from each season. So that's how we came up with it. Yeah, there's a little bit more. I mean, it goes a little bit more in depth, too, because... It is a Halloween-themed challenge. We thought each one of those sort of iconic characters lend themselves to icons of Halloween, and uh, necessity is the mother of invention, so us kind of going to them. We decided to put our own necks on the chopping block as opposed to bringing them to Los Angeles, so we said we're going to go out there and we're going to visit them in their hometowns, and this would just be a new way to see drag, the artists, and the way that it's made. Marcos writes, I wanted to ask if you are familiar with Spanish horror, and if you are, what is your favorite Spanish horror movie? I would say I would love to be more familiar with Spanish horror, because I think that my um, repertoire is very limited. Um, 
you know, Guillermo del Toro movies, I would say is my window into that world. I love the devil's backbone. I think that's a Spanish speaking movie. If I remember correctly, it's one of his older ones. It's basically like a classic ghost story. And much like his other films, it's set, uh, it's like a period piece and there's other things going on. I think there's some kind of like local revolution happening and it's a ghost story about a little boy and it's really good. Um, another one that sort of blew me away was Santa Sangre, which that's the one I was thinking. Yeah, of. yeah. Which is just visionary. It's like so mind bending when you, you, you can tell that this is not an American movie maker. And I think, you know, uh, it, it was so exciting to see that I'd love to see more. Yeah. If, if you, if listeners at home haven't seen that, you should definitely check it out. Jackson writes, in three words that aren't horror, filth, or glamour, how would you describe the vision for the fourth season? I'm going to choose groundbreaking, shocking, and iconic. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Drac Silva writes, how long does it take to film one regular episode of Dragula? I hate the word regular. I don't think anything we do is regular. So <laughs> I, I do know what you mean, though. Like sort of a, an episode that has like a standard format. And um, I'd say generally the filming would take two to three days for one episode. Yeah, I'd say about three. Yeah, about three days. And that's without the beginning or the end. That's just the reality portion in the middle. Yeah. Will writes... My question is, what is something difficult most people don't know about the production of the show? I think it's different for all of us. For me, it's emotionally draining. It's very emotionally draining because um, I feel like I pick up on the psychic energy of the competitors and the crew working on it. And there's so much emotion happening on that set every day and it's like you live through a movie each episode so you go through three days of beating and absorbing like the ups and downs of everyone and then you're like i'm so exhausted and then you're like but here we are again the next day for another (laughs) round you know part of that part of the scene of that entire ride is that someone's dreams are coming closer to reality and coalescing and another person's dreams are literally turning into a nightmare and ending yeah. Amongst all the work and expectation and all the execution. So I'm going to have to definitely agree with you. But my answer is much more simple and tactile and personal and selfish. Drag for like 20 hours is ridiculous. Like physically, it's so challenging. Just not just all the ways that we sort of bind our bodies from head to toe. Not only just the two of us, but the, com- the competitors as well. But then doing that in like a 90 degree room because air conditioning can't be used. I just want, sometimes I just want to like run out into traffic. (laughs) Gareth wants to know for the main show, how much behind the scenes preparation does it take to plan film and execute each extermination challenge? That's an interesting question because it depends on the extermination. Right? Well, you guys are laughing. Why? Oh, I don't know. I think Ian and I can sometimes just communicate with like with I, I have locking one, eyes. Oh yeah, I have one <laughs> very specifically that I'm thinking of. Okay. Episode one, season three, skydiving. Oh, I mean the the planning, the filming, the executing, and the just the mental toll on yeah. the three of us. I mean, 
I'll never recover. Yeah, I can, and you know, some of them come together really quickly too, right? Some of them you come together in a day. So it just yeah. depends. They they really vary. They really do vary. And some of them were not even re- prepared for at all. And when then, then you get there and you're actually trying to do it and it's totally like malfunctioning and you're having a meltdown in the wings <laughs> and then you have to pause everything and kind of reset up like that roach game. Like I was going to have a nervous breakdown. Cut, stab her again. <laughs> Oh, Carla writes, this is a question for the behind the scenes team of resurrection. What unique qualities does it take to earn a place within the trusted ninth circle of the Boulay brothers inner sanctum? I'm stealing that. I really like that. That descriptor. What would it, what's it take for you? I don't even think it's something that people could actually apply themselves to try to achieve. I I'd say like it's destiny. You have to be close enough to us so that we work together and are trusted. I mean, I guess if it was a quality that you could, could cultivate like trust is probably number one but number two is that you're really devoted to the project like you believe in the spirit of what we're doing because you get asked a lot i mean a lot gets asked of you personally you know all of the members of the, the crew and and for the example of resurrection the crew is very small um but we all give our blood sweat and tears and 150 percent of ourselves to make what we're creating amazing because we all believe in it for me i think you have to have a positive attitude. Like I, if you want to be the star, don't join the crew because the crew is not going to be a star. Like that's just not how it works on this. It's, it's very much like you have to be interested in working behind the scenes and cool with it. You have to be an extremely, I mean, when I say hard worker, I cannot even that, that doesn't even do it justice what it requires. Sakura asks, what do you really look for when you're casting? I want to audition, but I'm afraid it won't be good enough because I don't have slash don't do really big looks. It's not looks necessarily. It's not really big looks, just to use your 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 terminology there. And I think we went into this in detail on the last episode when we had the producers of Resurrection on, and we all kind of went around the table and talked about exactly what we looked for. And I'm going to borrow from them because I feel like Nathan and I think it was Ian that actually said two of the things that I was like, "Mm, I agree a hundred percent with those guys. Cause Nathan said, ultimately it's courage. It's courage to just be a hundred percent. You, we want to see originality and we don't want you to be afraid to really put it out there. And the the other part of that would be originality. Do you at a hundred percent don't look at previous contestants because we're not looking for a cookie cutter army we're looking for a really diverse group of artists so even if you have small strange looks that could be way better than huge looks that are uninspired or unoriginal i would say too if you don't have big looks you'd better have a big personality you have to big have a big something because if you're like i don't have big looks and i'm not very loud i'm like well this might not be the place for you (laughs) oh my god vanity question april says you two have the best skin how do you do it well you are right there i won't argue with you guilty as charged (laughs) look we wear a lot of makeup i'll say that but i actually think you know i think we have pretty good skin normally anyways um sorcery (laughs) i always say that uh every year at the halloween ball we drain the youth of the crowd. You know, I think we take maybe like a couple months from one person. Maybe it's just a few hours for another or a year from another. They deserve but that. But I think it works. You know, that that energy. And you guys know at the Halloween ball, when we come oh. out, 
you know, for our grand entrance every year. Yes. The, the energy in the room is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I think it just refreshes us. It's just so succulent. Sure is. Uh, uh, but no, I mean, what kind of beauty things do you use a lot of I mean, natural I think, stuff? Yeah, I use a lot of natural stuff, like essential oils and stuff. I mean, I don't know if I, if I'm in a position to like give beauty, uh, or skin advice, but I kind of follow, get good sleep, a lot of water and hydration, make sure your skin is clean, especially if you're doing drag and wearing a lot of makeup. Um, yeah. Don't smoke or do drugs. I was going to say, if you yeah. don't want to age your face, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't yeah. smoke. Cause don't, you'll don't look abu- like a damn hag. If you do those, it's things. the truth. Don't abuse it. Like, look, I, I burned hot when I was like really young and I would, I just like partied my ass off and I lived that life. But the truth is you can't keep it up. We've been in the nightlife industry for years and we watch these beautiful little flowers bloom around us and then they shrivel and die because they, they don't really know how to like maintain and you can't, you can't party that hard for that long Mm -hmm. without taking the toll on your body. Absolutely not. Anyone that's been in, in entertainment and that way for a long time knows that, you know, I think about people like Amanda Lepore who still looks flawless and of course she has helpers, but still I I know that she doesn't go out there and like party hard like that every night of the week. Jacob says, how do the competitors handle it when you give them the news that they are the ones being exterminated and then filming it? Is it a fast process? I want to throw this question to you because (laughs) this is your arena. This is definitely my arena. Uh, Tell us all about it. Uh, uh, starting with season one, uh, I was given the uh, the lovely task of I'm the one who calls the competitors to tell them that they have officially been exterminated and will not be returning for the next episode. And I got to say, it is truly like when Drac was saying like there's an emotional toll like that's my emotional toll like I I don't get off on it it's really it's hard it sucks it's sad like we we really come to like know these people um and it's brutal but to kind of answer the question is it a fast process some phone calls or some discussions are like one minute and others are like long drawn out like brutal like 30 minute like okay I have to go now you're not coming back next episode I'm really sorry <laughs> well the thing about that is y- you're telling them, and then they're done. They get to chill for a couple of days. But you usually are calling them, and you're like in a cornfield on a plane or something. And you're like, I got to go. I got to throw this other bitch out of a plane right now. Sorry. <laughs> totally. About the filming, the exterminations, we celebrate our contestants even in their last episode. So they're not just eliminated and kind of like you thrown away, you know, they're celebrated as a star of their own mini horror movie. And I think that most of them really look forward to that opportunity. They're like, I I get to go out in this kind of glorified, memorable way. It's such a a better uh, way to send them home than handing them a statue of me and uh, showing them crying and getting into a van. Yeah. But I don't know. We can do that if people would prefer. Want. I, I do want to say that because I'm, I'm kind of rereading this question. It's uh, part of it is how do the competitors handle it? And I think that there is something to be said of we really try our best to be kind to one another. Like I, the show, you know, it may seem like we're just throwing people out of planes or we're, you know, electrocuting them, but we really do care about everyone. And when when we give them the news that they've been exterminated, it's never just a callous like eh, you're you're gone. Like we really try to take the time to tell them like we are a family and we're let those bonds don't break. You know, you can always ask us for help, for advice, for other things. Your time on the show may have been dumb, but it doesn't mean that you're any less of an artist than all the other people on your season or the show. So I have a question for you about that, which is, 
did any of them stand out as particularly difficult? And if so, who? Okay, I'm looking over at this board uh, with all the competitors. And to be honest, there haven't really been any horror stories with people who take it like exceptionally poorly. Some people take it exceptionally well. And that is honestly a little scarier for me. Like I remember... Oh, God. I remember when I told Saint, actually, that uh, she had gotten exterminated. She was like, okay. I was like, are you are you sad? Are you just like, yeah, that sucks. I'm bummed. I'm really bummed. I'm really sad. I was like, okay, well, if you need anything, like, I'm right here. She's like, okay. Okay. Then she hung up. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that was supposed to be my whole hour. But like, okay, cool. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, Saint's really cool. And I think that that's just kind of her personality. Like, she, you know, she kind of rolls with the punches. And that's honestly what makes her so great to work with. You know, I think she didn't believe in herself and she was just like, I got on this show, you know, and she was just like, she didn't give a fuck because she was like, I mean, I think she cared, but you know what I mean? I think she wasn't really open yet, you know, and she was just like, how cool I got on this show and here I am on set and I'm going to go on a tour and like, she wasn't giving it her all quite yet. I feel like her and Aiden, who was on Drag Race and they, you know, kind of grew their drag together, very similar vibes, mm. you know, I felt like they were kind of like St. said, bedroom queens, you know, and, yeah. and so just that they got on the show, I think they felt like they got away with something. But then when we were like, no, you're actually talented and can do this. Well, that's interesting because it's almost like this charmed destiny mm-hmm. between the two of them. Ooh, how people must hate them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that I like to say. People shouldn't hate them because you pay for everything you get in your life. So, yeah. um, you know, if you haven't gotten yours yet, then maybe you're paying for something that's going to be coming down the road. Harlequin writes, my question is, how did you two find your confidence in your drag when you were first getting started? Well, it wasn't always there. I mean, I think that everybody grows and you fuck up and look stupid. And when you look back at pictures, you cringe because you're like, I can't believe I left the house looking like that. But there was something sort of special about the way that we kind of came up and came out. And I've said this a few times and I'll say it again. We are kind of like Athena being born fully formed from the forehead of Zeus a little bit of mythology for you. When we decided that we were going to do this, we were going to take the lever and fully switch it and become the Boulay brothers. You, you could have come to the show and one night we came out of the red curtain looking one way, we threw that switch and then we came out of the curtain looking 100% like fully formed. People in Los Angeles were like, where the hell did these two come from? It was like we were, you know, on level 10 on day one. Yeah, and I remember when we would perform and drag in our stage shows and they asked about confidence. I was having so much fun that I didn't care. Like I was a hundred percent confident because for and you know this, oh my God, I would do so ridiculous shows. It was fun for me because when we used to do clubs, they were like fetish clubs. And I used to, you know, I'd be as a guy very serious and S and M and leather and jock straps and all this shit, like spanking people and all this kind of stuff. And then when I got the chance to go on stage and just be a ridiculous fool, it was so fun that I was like, confidence was not in question at all. It was just fun. Yeah, it's based on the performance. And people forget like drag should really be fun. It's a lot of hard work in, in many ways for people. Their experience is like it's, it's competitive, but at its base, it's a performance, it's entertainment, and it's really fun. It should be fun. It should you be. You know, you should always try to, because even us, I feel like sometimes it gets away with you when it becomes a job and you're like, wait a minute, is this still fun? And then you have to do things that remind you that it is still fun. Like, uh, I felt like when we did our digital drag shows, like Theater Macabre, that was fun yeah. to do. Um, yeah. Anyways. 
sorry, really quick, just wanted to say, speaking of digital drag, I was re-watching digital drag the other day, and I was watching your... Uh, the what's a girl to do show. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that show, even though it is a very somber, I feel like you can totally tell you guys are having so much fun with it. Like when that box opens up and the light comes out, I'm like, Oh bitch, Drac is living and swans (laughs) twirling in the front. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I think, I feel like our shows, people don't necessarily expect like, what are the Boulay brothers going to do? Cause they, they see us in one very specific light. Cause they see us on Dragula. So like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, they're going to perform. Like, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? You can feel that anticipatory electric energy in the air i feel like it's an enchantment and especially that number because the song is so melodic and somber like and we're gonna behead you bitches (laughs) that's 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 the punchline it's a stupid thing that i i'm gonna reveal (laughs) it's like sometimes when we when we do more complicated shows (laughs) the first time i do i swear i'm a little kid like i'm performing and i'm like oh my god i'm doing it i'm doing it i'm remembering (laughs) It's so stupid. But at the end, I'm like, yes, I did it. We all have our strengths. I don't It's true. Because I don't, some of the, you know, we always do different I know, things. And yeah. if you bring like something, then I'm like, that's too much. I'm not doing that. I'm like, relax, breathe. You got this. We're going to rehearse. You're like, there's no way I can do this. No way. It's too complicated. Because yeah, in my head, I'm like, fuck, man. I'm going to have to rehearse that for like a month. Anyways. <laughs> oh, Lord. Emiliano writes, in the resurrection opening scene, Drac took Victoria, Saint, and Louisiana's portraits. Two out of those three did end up on the show. And was Louisiana supposed to also be a part of the special, or am I reading too much into this? She was not supposed to be on the special. What that was was to sort of try to establish Dragula as a family. So right? So it's kind of like it's not it wasn't a signal to be like they were supposed to be on the special. It's sort of just to remind people of the universe, you know, Hollow and Abora and Louisiana, they're all in the universe. So you never know who might pop up in the next special. And finally, Lillian writes Professors keep telling me that art is completely separate from business, and I do not agree. As two successful artists, producers, content creators, etc., what is your take on this? Art and business can exist together, but I feel like they are two forces always in a like forever struggle with each other. I mean, if you're an artist trying to make money and live off of your art and you control the business aspect, it is a very difficult thing to balance because one calls for concessions from the other. Yeah, I think your professor is right, honestly. I think uh, if you're very successful at business as an artist, you will get to a place where someone will probably have to take that over for you because they are in opposition, and it's very frustrating. I would say, for me, it is the most frustrating about what we do is the business side of it. I find it aggravating, annoying, and stressful. I would love to just be able to produce stuff and not worry about all that Unfortunately, that's not the way our cards were dealt. Let's put it out into the universe, though. That's what we want after this hell hell year. In yes. 2021, that's what we want. There you go. I think that's all the time we have for questions for now. Remember, if you have a question you would like us to answer on air about the Boulay Brothers Dragula, Creatures of the Night, or any of our projects that we're working on, you can email us at creatures at com. And now it's time to move on to this episode's Haunting of History. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, 
and prepare for a journey into the unknown. This story is based around the age-old tale of neighbors at war. A woman named Kate Batts believed her neighbor, John Bell, cheated her out of some land. And so, lying on her deathbed in the early 19th century, she swore she would haunt him and his family forever. John Bell, a farmer from North Carolina, along with his wife and children, settled in northern Robertson County, Tennessee in 1804. This area was central to a series of huge revival meetings that sparked a resurgence in religious zeal that exploded across America at the beginning of the 19th century. Their farm could be found right along the Red River, 320 rich acres of good farmland, and whether or not the Bell Farm was acquired at the expense of Kate Batts in some way is unknown. Life was peaceful here for the first 13 years, and in that time, John Bell and his family joined the Red River Baptist Church, where he became a deacon and the family prospered. But soon, events would develop that would bring the peace that the family had enjoyed to an end. The year was 1817. Strange animals began being spotted on the Bell Farm. Eyewitnesses professed to seeing dogs with the heads of rabbits prowling about and young girls in green dresses were seen swinging from the trees in the yard and then disappearing. Late at night, the family started hearing knocking sounds on the doors and outer walls of the house. Soon, sounds were being heard in the house. Chains being dragged across the floorboards. Rats gnawing on the bedpost. Sheets being pulled from the bodies of the sleeping children, and then gulping and choking sounds. The family was terrified. John was a respected member of the community church, so they decided to keep the problem to themselves for over a year. When things became intolerable, John confided in a neighbor, and soon, word of the supernatural events spread, and people were coming from miles around to hear and witness this unseen force that was terrorizing the Bell home. Before long, the unseen force had gained enough strength that it now had a voice. And when asked who and what it was, it gave different answers, but it did once state that it was the spirit of a neighbor woman named Kate Batts the same woman who had supposedly been cheated by John Bell and then cursed him on her deathbed. This is what many people believed as the truth, and from then on, this unseen force was called Kate, the Bell's Witch. Over the next three years, Kate tormented members of the Bell's family almost daily, but she seemed to focus her abuse on two people specifically, John, of course, and his youngest daughter, Betsy, At some point, and for reasons unexplained, Kate once showed great displeasure in response to young Betsy Bell's engagement to a neighbor boy named Joshua Gardner. She spared no efforts in voicing her disapproval, and Betsy continued to be a focus of Kate's tormenting. Betsy had her hair pulled. She was pinched, scratched, stuck with pins, and even beaten by an unseen poltergeist. John began suffering from spells of swelling of the throat. 
he often had the feeling of a stick being stuck sideways in his neck. Then came the twitching and jerking of the facial muscles. During these spells of spasming and swelling, John would hear Kate's voice unleashing endless volleys of hideous threats. This went on for years, and as time went on, John Bell became weaker and weaker. It seemed that one of Kate's ultimate goals was to kill John Bell, and in December of 1820, it appeared she had succeeded. John Bell died. Death by poisoning. The people believed he died at the hands of the Bell's witch, and Kate took full credit. A few short months after her father's passing, the fear of the witch got the best of Betsy Bell, and in March of 1821, she broke off her engagement with young Joshua Gardner. It seemed Kate had succeeded in her second and final objective, because soon after, she bid everyone farewell, but promised to return to Tennessee in seven years. She did return in 1828 for a few short weeks. During this visit, she came to the home of John Bell Jr. and had long talks with him about the past, the present, and she even made some predictions for the future and promised to return in another 107 years. That third visit would have happened in 1935. However, some people believe that she, Kate, never really left the area at all due to the strange things that have occurred over these many years in and around the town of Adams, and specifically in a cave found near the Bell Farm property line, now known as the Bell Witch Cave. The legend of the Bell Witch is still taught in local schools to this day as part of Tennessee's history and local folklore. Enthusiasts can visit the Bell Witch Cave and visit a reconstruction of the Bell Cabin during the area's annual Bell Witch Festival happening each fall. That's all the time we have for now, children. If you're enjoying the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night, we want to remind you to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and to also encourage everyone you know to do the same. We'll see you back here soon on the next episode of Dread Central's The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Thanks for listening. Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drac Morta and Swanthula Boulay, along with co-host and producer Ian DeVogler, in association with Dread Central. Edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Neuron Spectre.